This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook, Volume 2, and today is September 10th, 2023. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Uh, my name is Barry Lane. That's the easy part. Uh, the years were probably 78 to 83, 84. I kind of stuck around for a while. Okay. Well, welcome back, and, and thank you so much for doing this. Last time uh, you spoke with Jen Murphy-Packer, and this time you're stuck with me. Hopefully it'll be an enjoyable experience uh, either way. Well, it has to be. It <laughs> will be. Okay. Um, so did you have any titles or positions at the station uh, while you were there? I believe I did. Um, it's, you know, as age hits, memory goes. Um, I believe I was news director one year, but mostly I was a gadfly. I was there all the time. Um, I, you know, on air, off air, news, a lot of productions, kind of specials. And at one point, I was the assistant to Jeff Krause. I haven't heard of that before. I was going to ask you about news director, but let's let's talk about that. What is what is the position of assistant to Jeff Krause, and and uh, how did that come about? I had a work study grant, and it was kind of a summer thing, and I really had no reason to spend any more time than necessary with Bill Wren. <laughs> so um, I spoke to Jeff and he said, absolutely, let's do this. But don't ever say you're the assistant general manager. You're the assistant to the general manager. And he was very clear about that in that very special voice he had mm. in between puffing on the, on, on the uh, pipe. Hmm. Um, I think that was a long running joke on the, on the series, uh, the office that you weren't the assistant regional manager. The assistant was Dwight Schrute was the assistant to the regional manager. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's an important distinction, but, but you got this gig. It was a work study. Was that something that you pursued through the communication school or was it something that Jeff came up with? No, I pursued it through the school. Well, it wasn't his communication school at the time. Right. You have to go back to when it was uh, a department um, that had much of the same stuff, just not as nice. Um, and between the communications department and financial aid, I was able to get a work-study program. Okay. Um, so what were you doing uh, in that position for that summer? Were there specific tasks that Jeff had in mind, or was it just be here and be part of the scene and whatever comes up, comes up. Yeah, kind of the latter. Um, mm -hmm. As much as Jeffrey loved organization and planning, um, this was very much not that. Um, and I guess that was kind of tailored to my personality. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, um, it was very much the latter. It was very much, oh, okay, this needs doing, Barry, go do it. Mm -hmm. um, and he trusted me, which, you know, I, I got to say, in retrospect, made me a little bit unique. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's, that's kind of what it was. It was whatever came up that he didn't want to stand up and deal with, I did. 
that is a that is an important position to have because uh, there are so many things, and um, to have someone that you trust and is capable of doing things that's uh, that is like you said that's a big uh, feather in your cap coming from Jeff Krause. He didn't he didn't suffer fools, and he didn't give opportunities to people who didn't demonstrate some ability and and trustworthiness. So well, and um, also commitment. I have to yeah. say. Um, well, my commitment was okay. You know, I was concurrent with Scott Cinnamon Mm -hmm. and I was concurrent with Sue Zizza and there was nobody, there were nobodies as committed to the success as they were. And it's something that, you know, we all kind of gathered around and appreciated the support because it was it was kind of a little osmosis through the team. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I started doing the sports stuff, which was great fun, um, it had nothing to do with anybody other than Todd and I and Mike Harrison. And we just, you know, we ran at it. It's kind of the Jeff approach. There's a wall, knock it down. Mm. So that summer... Um you mentioned Scott and Sue, usually summertime is, you know, it's a skeleton crew. A lot of students go home. Uh, There's not as many commuter students around. Um, Who else is around? That's why he needed me. That's why he needed me. Um, And I don't mean that in a self-aggrandizing way. He needed an extra pair of hands because if you didn't have an air shift, you weren't there. And there was other stuff that needed to get done. I couldn't tell you three of them, but I know that it got done. Right. Keeping the station on the air, doing all the things that, that need doing that, uh, the mundane things, it's, it's part of the process. And when you have more bodies around, that can be split uh, among many hands. But yep. Um, yep. that's, yep. that's yep. impressive. Yep. Yeah. So, so in the in the interview with Jen, you talked about being news director, and I, I I can't remember the exact phrase, but she said, "I guess there wasn't a lot of news that year, or something to that effect." But you did a documentary. Yeah, I did about I Vietnam veterans, and, and uh, I, I I loved it. I don't know if anybody's ever heard it in the thirty years since, um, but I loved it. I thought it was um, I thought it was timely. I thought it was, um, I had some really interesting people. I was lucky to learn that the head of the Vietnam Veterans of America was a Hofstra grad. Hmm. So he played a large part in it. Um, and it was, you know, we, we, we chose music tracks very specifically. Um, we organized it. Um, nobody ever said it had to be 30, 60, 90 minutes. It was until it finished. Um, and it could have been a series, but I didn't have that much energy. So um, it was as long as it needed to be. The footage, the, the, the sound recording was really good. Um, clearly not done by me. Um, you know, somebody running, running the board. And I think it was Steve Spencer who really gave me some, uh, um, very strong advice, uh, throughout. And, um, it was, you know, nominated for a couple of awards and that's not why I did it. I did it because it was a year before the formal anniversary. So it was a lead up and I thought it was pretty good. 
Um, I have so many questions to follow up here, but, but I want to get back to that, the germ of it. Why was this an idea that you came up with? How did, how did you come up with the idea of doing this documentary? How did it start? I was reading something, something we don't do anymore. Mm. I was reading something and it was talking about, let's see, this was 1981, 82, 83. And it was a 10th anniversary of fleeing Hanoi. Mm. And so I said, well, you know what? There are a lot of vets on the island and in our listening area and overall nationwide. So the title of it really told the story. It wasn't just historical. It was Vietnam 10 years after, how is it going? And it was all about the vets and how they were adapting, and where they were getting support, and how they were supporting each other. And I just thought it was a really interesting take on what were going to be a bunch of rote um, retrospectives, and I wanted it to be a little bit of a prospective. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a high school social studies teacher now, and I try to give students today as much context as possible because it's it's completely out of their you know experience what the national mindset was towards Vietnam veterans at that time and as as a kid as as you know a preteen during that era I was aware that there was kind of a negative feeling towards a lot of Vietnam veterans at the time. There was a there was a great homeless problem among veterans who weren't getting the services and support that they needed. Um, that if you saw someone wearing that 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 green, you mm-hmm. know, jacket. Mm-hmm. It, Camouflage came home, right. Yeah. But you know what? It message. wasn't just homeless. It, I'm sorry right. to interrupt. It wasn't just homelessness. It was a ton of junkies. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a ton of people before the Wounded Warrior Project mm-hmm. who had um, physical and emotional scars. And, you know, it's funny, uh, 20, 30 years later, it's more important to me now than it was then because I own a veteran. I have a son who's 23 years old and is a Marine Corps vet. Mm. And first of all, I never thought I'd be old enough to have a vet as a son um, or be the child of one, you know, be the parent of one. Um, But it has given me a greater appreciation. I saw how, and he saw very little duty. I mean, I wasn't supposed to know when he was in the desert. I knew. Um, But I see the physical remnants, and he was not under attack at any time. And, you know, there is a a medical pension he receives. He lost, I don't know, 60 plus percent of his hearing. He tore his labrum in his hip. He had back surgery, all by being a Marine. Hmm. And so imagine that 30 years ago when you're coming off a boat in a rice paddy in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the things I try to get across uh, to to kids and and 
to other teachers, in fact, that the, the, the trauma, the experience of what many veterans went through, and then there really wasn't a lot of support, uh, I think, from the military and from the public uh, as people and came v- back. Yeah. yeah, and the VA was a mess. Let me mm. say that clearly. Yeah. The VA was a mess. Now, the VA is still a mess. Um, it is too large a bureaucracy. Um, they are overworked and underpaid. All people in hospitals are. Um, But the VA also has to follow very specific rules. So, for example, today, if you're a veteran and you receive a pension and somehow the, uh, the IRS reports that you've been receiving insurance payments on a long term care policy and an awful lot of vets are of that age now. That's considered income, and they lower your uh, pension. Isn't that crazy? That's that. There, there's all. We we could go on a very long tangent here with all the ways yeah. that that's that's wrong and unfortunate and and just what's you know the opposite of of useful. It's harmful. But yeah. um, it's I, the I same just, thing with college. By the way, I will tell you. And you probably know this. Um, I don't know if anybody hearing this really knows this. But if you're a student with student loans, forget the military for a second, which will make Mm -hmm. you rich while you're in school. If you are a student, and even if you're a vet, and you take student loans, not even death discharges that debt. Yeah. Did you know that? Yeah. And I, I think that came about during the Vietnam era because there were young men who were signing up for college to avoid the draft and then perhaps not finishing the four years for, for various reasons. And uh, somehow that got put through um, to make it a penalty right. um, to, av- you know, to keep people about, from yeah, to avoiding We service. talked about that in, in, in the doc because remember, um, this was the end of the draft. Mm-hmm. So people were concerned with their number. Yeah. You know, if you had a low number, you were going to go enjoy life for the next three weeks because you didn't know if you were going to be alive five weeks later. Yeah. And generationally, there are people who didn't believe in the war, but also didn't believe in jail and Canada. Right. So they went. And you as an undergrad take on this project from an article that you read and you get this uh, experience and this, this wealth of knowledge. And, and I'm going to imagine a lot of empathy uh, for the men and women who were in service in Vietnam during this time. And again, that time period where they weren't held in high esteem generally, specifically mm-hmm. sometimes, sure, but generally, God, that's, that's a big project to take on. I that's, loved it. Yeah. I loved it. Here's the thing. And I said this to Jen, I think. Ofstra Radio was an island back in the day. Uh-huh. Uh, there wasn't a school of communications. Um, there was no, the school was built on silos. Even though it was in the same department, you know, the Chronicle never really paid attention to radio. Mm -hmm. Hofstra Television, where I was also very involved, um, really did not integrate well with audio. 
And you think now as an NPR affiliate and all those other things, they have great opportunities. They also have a large amount of money that we didn't have then. Mm-hmm. Um, small world. I dated Lawrence Herbert's daughter. Okay. Um, recently. <laughs> um, so heard the stories. But we didn't have any of that. So radio was a silo. So when I did that doc, in the back of my mind, I kept saying, why aren't we using cameras? And the radio, the TV station, even though I was involved in both, didn't really care. Hmm. Um, I think I broke the barrier. We did a music video show where we found local kind of unsigned bands on the TV side. And they came in. And I hosted it, and I'll put big quotation marks around that, um, as the radio character I had built for that format. Wow. Um, yeah, I think there's there's a history of, of uh, every once in a while, uh, people from the radio station doing their best to promote local bands. Um, but that's that's interesting. And then, uh, you know, you talk about the interplay or the lack of interplay between those facets of the communications department. And today, I think there's a big emphasis on, well, you can do this and do this and do that. And here's how to combine all of them. It's uh, it's a tremendous advantage and resource for students today. But back then, um, there wasn't that connection. And that's, that's too either. bad. That's too bad because it would be wonderful to have archival film footage of those interviews that you did. Or yeah, I, and pieces. also the interviews that everybody did in the studio um, when artists were on the road. Mm-hmm. I think I told Jen Duran Duran popped in the night before yeah. their first U.S. concert. Love that story. Um, Visage, who nobody remembers, but Rusty Smith came in. You know, Setzer was a listener. Um, there are a lot of people who came by. Um, as it evolved to more hip hop, um, it was very different, but that was a different person and it wasn't real. It had a name of the post-punk progressive pop party. And I'm the only one who can say it that fast. (laughs) Um, but it became a hip hop show under, um, the vision of Jeff Foss, the late Jeff Foss. And Jeff was an interesting guy. You know, Jeff was never a student at Hofstra. Mm -hmm. Jeff was a Navy vet who had served on like nuclear subs, had a terrific voice, a questionable on-air personality, but a real passion. And he made a real dent in the early-ish days of uh, hip-hop. I mean, you know, we all played the Sugar Hill Gang. Mm-hmm. Um, but and DMC and and all of that, particularly because Run DMC was local. Yeah, uh, but he really, really, really uh, made that change, and it really did redefine what the P five was. And I think it should have changed names because I think the legacy that Bob Goldsmith and Sal Licurdo and uh, Jimmy. Um, and to a lesser degree, I, because I guess I was number four on that list, um, really created, you know, the first songs I think we played were like the cars and the police 
uh, before anybody heard him. And then there was Rockabilly. And then there was Dave Edmonds coming out of the UK. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you live that and and a lot of hard rock, right? You go to the, you go to Max's and you go to the clubs in the city. And then, you know, all of a sudden Malibu opens up and some other clubs open up. My father's place kind of starts evolving people like John Blenn, who was at the radio station and was on air, Mm -hmm. but was really the most curious person as it dealt with music and performance and wound up, I think writing every writing for or running every music magazine there was on Long Island. Yeah. Amen. Um, And, and, and a passion for it and had a passion for the people around his commitment to art um, is probably second to none, probably tied with Sue, um, who just devoted her life to what Jeff taught her, which was radio drama means something, that you can tell stories in really interesting ways. Yeah, and there's there's so many different storytelling tools and, and some of the names that you've put out there. Uh, John Blenn, I'd love to talk to him. I remember... When I was at, at Hofstra in the 90s that John was running, I think it was Good Times Magazine and and going to all the concerts and the shows. And he's, he's still active and he was writing plays and producing things and talking to bands. Um, so many passionate people. Um, and you mentioned uh, some of the other guys who were there for the early part of the post-punk progressive pop party, uh, Robert Goldsmith and Sal Licurdo. And I talked to those guys. And Did you they- speak to Sal? Did yeah. you speak? Because I didn't hear that one. Sal was one of the good guys. Sal, you know, and he stayed in music. He was the music director of MTV and VH1. Mm-hmm. And now he runs Southern California radio, public um, radio. Yeah, it was really interesting talking to those guys because because uh, Bob, Robert came up first and he, you know, basically said, I was really into the music. I was really into the scene. I was going to every record store. I was buying as much as I could. I was going to the clubs but I wasn't necessarily making friends with station management. And Sal, on the other hand, came in very much like, I want to do radio and I've got, you know, management chops and editing chops and production chops. And the two of them somehow got linked together. And then, you know, right after I talked to, to, to Bob, I talked to Sal and their stories matched up that, you know, they had different talents and different interests, but they helped bring that show together. And then I remembered your conversation with Jen about your participation in P5. So I just wanted to, um, you know, double back to that idea. And what do you remember about those guys or other people who are working on that show in the early days? Um, They were very specific. Bob in particular had a very specific format, Mm -hmm. which kind of surprised me. Bob was the music guy, not the radio guy to some degree. And between he and Sal, they really wanted to build a format. And it was kind of old school radio. We're going to approve the music that goes on. Not the specific tracks, but certainly the artists and the albums. Right. Um, And, you know, they held it to us until I started breaking format, but don't tell anybody. (laughs) Um, But I would do things like I would play Lester Bowie followed by David Bowie. Uh Uh-huh just simply because I was convinced they weren't related. But, you know, Lou Reed became a staple and Brian Setzer became a a staple and Debbie Harry became a staple. 
And at the very beginning, Madonna right. was a staple. And we'd go see her, and she was boring in her first shows. And we never understood how she became who she became. But, you know, the dancer in her came out and the performer in her came out and we were there. And then kind of the music changed from the Ramones and Lou Reed and all of that very heavy New York influence. And then it came from the UK and Bob would go to Rough Trade and he would look for imports. Right. Music, music, music. He would look at imports. He would sample them. Um, and then it became the new, ro- new romantics, which we took before anybody else. And whether it was Visage or it was Duran, was any of those guys, we were there. There were a couple of other stations. Um, Sal was key behind FUV or NYC, rather. Uh, yeah, WNYU after he left yeah. Hofstra, yeah. Right. Um, and PLJ had some of it. P- PIX had... Great stuff, but it was not commercial and they couldn't live with it. Right. Because remember, we were commercial free and God knows we had no income. Um, you know, even Sweet Olson had more money coming in than we did. Yeah. Sweet was a big money maker for the yeah. station for a long time. Yeah. And because it was his format and it was very unique, our format and our music choices were much more broad. And your audience is different. Swede was broadcasting to adults in a community. You yes. guys were broadcasting to teenagers who had no money and you know, or were saving whatever money they had to buy that one record or go to that one show. There wasn't there wasn't a lot of uh, money to be had there, I think. That's just that's just a difference in but you were serving a community. We were absolutely serving a community and I think it was, you know, I don't wanna overstate it as I've already done seventeen times, but you know, think to 1963, 62, 63, when the Stones and the Beatles invaded. Um, and they were very different and the adults didn't know what to make of them. And they were a kid's product. Go back 10 years. It was Elvis, the same thing. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want to say that Duran Duran had that. Um, to me, the best band of the era was Squeeze. I love Squeeze. Um, so, you know, I had a little difference of opinion with a lot of people, but I thought Squeeze was it. And I still do. I think that their songs hold up, but also very British stuff. I was huge into ska. Huge Mm -hmm. into ska. And think about anybody who can look at you and say, I loved ska in 1983. (laughs) yeah they're lying probably yeah right when we did i did the first uh sounding too self-aggrandizing we created the first kind of snl knockoff on um what was then hofstra television Mm -hmm. in a three-room studio that had nine foot ceilings and you know a lot of a lot of limitations but it was called Be Serious. And the reason it was called Be Serious was when we did our news segment, it was BS News. Nice. Well, well played. And, um, but the theme song in 1982 was Madness, One Step Beyond. Fantastic. 
I love it. So, you know, that's how we did the, that's how I tried to do the cross-pollinization. So, uh, you know, we, we talked about the, the culture of the listening audience and what you guys were doing and who, you know, who you were reaching and, and what you were tapping into. But I've heard from some other people too about that time that the idea of doing the P5 kind of, it's not rock and roll, but a P5 kind of rock show as opposed to changes or the folk music that was there before, there's a little bit of a a difference in opinion. There were some people who wanted more of a classic rock and roll kind of show. And then you guys are coming in with the new wave and, and the ska and, and the punk stuff that it was, it was very different. How do you remember how that was received or pushed against? Yeah, I do. And the ironic thing is I was doing the other shows at the same time. Well, um, I did classical. Yeah. I mean, listen to this voice and imagine me doing classical. Um, but I did folk and we would have people come in. Um, I did the original kind of, cl- even though it wasn't called classic rock, it was. Right, right. Because um, at that time that was classic. Um, but yeah, I had done all of them and I noticed there was... It, it started as kind of a vampire cross of your arms. Like, don't come near me with that. Uh-huh. I don't uh-huh. understand it. All of that crap. And then within about six months, when there was a real buzz, both on air and on the phones and on campus. Remember, we were on a college campus. Um. Yeah people who were adamantly opposed. Again, it feels like Elvis in 53, uh, but people who were adamantly opposed to what we had started began saying, Oh, you know, we could get behind the rock hats. We could get behind Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe. Mm -hmm. It's not so revolutionary. Um, it was when you played the Ramones and you played Lou Reed and you played, you know, all that stuff is when they had a harder time with it. And the new romantics that came in um, wasn't as scary. I mean, Boy George scared the hell out of everybody, but that yeah, was a different yeah. thing. Um, but that musical element that had shifted, right, from the angry, from the clash to Duran. Right, it was only a year and a half, but they were they were lifetimes apart. Right, and yeah. the ability to love both of them, like to go to every class show when they were playing at Bonds, oh, um, was was extraordinary, and it gave me now many years later an appreciation. And what I love is I have two kids, and they're now you know they pretend to be adults. But are, I remember, we, are we all pretending to be adults? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> but I remember when they were 8, 10, 11, and my son played me an album or a track. I don't know what it was, probably a tape in my car or a CD in my car. And it was James Brown. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't believe that I knew who James Brown was. He thought he discovered him. Right. So it's that it's that sense of journey and discovery that we really helped. I don't want to say we're responsible for. God knows we're not. 
Um, but I think we were responsible for WLIR failing at a new age radio station, a new, uh, no a new music radio station. I think we influenced the consultants because most of the radio consultants that I knew, Walt Sabo and, and, and Lee Abrams and all those guys, had a big influence on the West Coast. You know, there was a guy named Mike Harrison on the West Coast who was KMET. And KMET was basically the L.A. version of WNEW before they started rolling in new music. And that was taken over by K-Rock, K-R-O-Q, mm-hmm. which has been for 30 years the highest billing radio station in L.A. And ironically, the only station that outbilled it was Light FM in New York. And I just wanted to shoot myself. On the other hand, one of my classmates was the news person at Light FM. And that was Rasa Bobelis, Rasa K. Right. Have you spoken to Rasa? I, I have not. I have not. I you would should. love to. I would love you to. You really should. She is really interesting. She married a very interesting guy yeah. in Ross Britain. Yeah. Um, and if her memory holds up, it'll be a really interesting thing because she was also very culturally her, um, her heritage. And so she had the best of all of it. And she was just a terrific person. So I'd encourage you to talk to Rasa if you can find her. That's that is that is the magic uh, question. It's it's uh, I'm doing my best to reach out to people, and and if I can get them, uh, I, I definitely will. But yeah, her name has come up uh, a number of times, and Ross Britton and his influence uh, is probably one of the reasons I wound up at the Hofstra radio station because a very good friend of mine was a huge fan of his and a huge radio junkie, and I was sort of going along for the ride. So. It's kind of funny how these things uh, bring each yeah. other back. But I want I want to double back earlier because you mentioned a name that's very important and dear to me. You mentioned Steve Spencer and working yeah. on that uh, documentary together. And I, I'm sure it'd be hard to, to pull up. You said he, he pushed you on several things. And if not the specifics, because I remember him giving me great advice when he was uh, the interim assistant general manager uh, in the nineties when Jeff took ill. And I remember him giving me such good advice and pushing me in specific ways. Um, I'm wondering if you remember what was like working with him, uh, on that project. It was very interesting. Um, Steve, as you know, is a font of knowledge about everything. Uh huh. Um, it's scary, right? Yeah. The things that he can pull out of his rear pocket, mm-hmm. um, is amazing. And so as I was recording, not so much interviewing, but recording the voice pieces and putting it together, he would say, well, you know this, or you know that. And it really helped me. Like, um, oh, like using a track from Billy Joel, right? His Saigon track, mm-hmm. who he was too young to have been in Saigon, but it was really telling. And every vet who came in for the interview loved it. So that became a very important part of the production. And it was his idea. Hmm. Hmm. Um, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I, I, I loved working with Steven. You're right. He is so well read and well versed in so many things. And he's got a really great way of, um, explaining things 
to push you in you know the right direction or to give you the option to go that way but uh, yes really he never demanded that. Right. but he said but he said it in such a way you knew he was right mm-hmm. you know uh kraus demanded it wasn't a conversation it wasn't a socratic dialogue it was do this it'll be better do this um mm. and that helped us i think you know he had to he had to be very dogmatic right um to run what is really just a bunch of ragtag guys and women, mm-hmm. um, most of whom never went near a radio station again. It was the joy of college. It was the joy of music. You never knew who was listening, but you were doing it for yourself. Mm-hmm. When you go to radio after that, which I did for a while, you weren't doing it for yourself. You were doing it for the audience, for whatever it was. I programmed WMCA at one time. I didn't program. I was executive producer. And we would do things very community-based. Like one day a month was Brooklyn Day. And I remember getting Mario Cuomo's wife, Matilda, who grew up in Midwood, Brooklyn, And then talking to Mario saying he knew he made it when he met Matilda and she, and he was a Queens guy, as was I. And he remembered that he knew he made it because she had her own stoop. It was a one family house or two family house, but she had a stoop, which meant all his guys can come over and they could play stoop ball if you're old enough to know what that was. Mm Mm-hmm. That's great. And so things like that. And and reaching out to Marty Ehrlichman, who later became a friend when I lived in Los Angeles, who was Barbara Streisand's manager from the time she was 16, and getting her to participate. Um, and because, you know, you talk about the borough and now it becomes really interesting because that's hometown. Right. Right. My father went to, I think he was in the first class at Erasmus High. So there was so much connectivity. And my mother lived in Midwood around the corner from Matilda. Didn't know each other, but so I had some, you know, knowledge of the neighborhood. And um, so those things were really good. And it was the first time that Jeff gave me the authority to voice those interstitials. Usually it had to be a radio, it had to be a show host, like a real day, you know, a real daytime kind of guy mm-hmm. um, or woman. But mostly, I mean, I had Kit Hunt to a ton of them, but Jeff gave me the, uh, I made him give me the green light. I waited until he gave me the green light. And then I did them. And it, first of all, it speeded it up a great deal. Um, but yeah, it was awesome. And then we carried that forward you know, at MCA. Mm -hmm. So the stuff I learned at Hofstra, I was able to put into use within two or three years. I don't know how the hell I got to, you know, market number one in two or three years, but I did. Mm. And as a radio journeyman, because God knows I wasn't that good, um, and I don't have the voice to do morning news. I have the voice to do morning news stories, to tell stories but not that, you know, super deep voice. 
Um, you know, and finding people at Hofstra who you never would have thought would have made sense on air. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I do. And then I went out and the first, one of the first guys I hired at WMCA was Chris Russo. No kidding. Mike, Mike and the Mad Dog. I had the Mad Dog and I actually had relationships at FAN and negotiated his first deal for him. Wow. Um, but I never would have thought about Chris and that unique delivery that he still has yeah. had it not been for Carl Bucking, uh-huh. right? Some kind of off-the-wall guy, George Musgrave, who was never on the air but really committed to it. But Bucking, with the British accent, really worked. We never would have thought of it. The fact that he knew more about classical music than any of us should have been the key. Uh, but- yeah, there's another guy who knows a ton about everything. That's yeah. another very smart person there. Yeah. Right. I mean, look, we were never going to put Mike Kluger on the air. I don't but, think Mike wanted to be on the air. I think, I think tr- that was his yeah. perfect role. Yeah. But the truth is the station wouldn't have been on the air without him. Yeah. 100%. Because we had all of these chief engineers who were alumni and friends of Jeff, and they were given an assignment or a request to do X. And the answer, and I'm sure you've heard this from other people, was always two weeks. Yeah, yeah. Two weeks. Yeah. When is it going to be done? Two weeks. And two weeks became 26. Because, you know, they had lives. And we all had lives outside that building. And this was the Memorial Hall days, right? So yeah. you go upstairs and there's one big room and you go downstairs and there's one big room. There aren't multiple studios. Nobody really went to the little theater by the time I was there. And, you know, you could you could be at the console with a mic or you can be in an announce, ro- announce room in the bike, which also happened to have been the record library. And that was it. Those were your two choices. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and Jeff requiring us all to have our FCC licenses um, had a reason. And that was you're on at 11 o'clock at night. There's nobody else there. You got to do your readings. Yep. Or you got to fake it and just give the same readings the last guy did. But still, you had to sign it. Don't let and, the FCC hear that. Yeah. Well, you know, a little late now. I think I've got statute of limitations covered. <laughs> I, um, I, it makes me nervous. I, I like to throw yeah. that out there. But, but you know, if it weren't for Kraus, we couldn't have been on the air. And it wouldn't have been, and it wasn't for, you know, if it weren't for people like Kluger as a student and Musgrave as a vet, as, a, as, a, as an alumni, we wouldn't have stayed on the air. Yeah, there are there are so many people who would contribute in various ways. We've I've talked a lot recently about Elliot Lifson and uh, yeah. obviously George is uh, is and and Mike Kluger is still involved and and so yeah. many people are still involved. But that that sets the tone. But um, and I'll tell you the other thing that that these guys helped us with and nobody knew was again having done sports and whether I was doing color for football at the stadium or we were literally at UCLA or Notre Dame mm-hmm. and didn't have a phone line because it was all just, co you know, it wasn't even coax, right? It was crossed lines. It was just wires. Right. 
um, if we didn't have someone like Mike to call and say, diagnose this for me from 3,000 miles, we wouldn't have had the opportunity to broadcast from UCLA, uh, UC Santa Barbara, Irvine, you know, all of those places, much less Notre Dame, which had, I don't know if you've heard this, the day of the game, the back page of the Notre Dame Daily newspaper, the headline was, what's a Hofstra? <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and, and we, we lost, um, but you know, we, we had a presence Yeah, and, and, and having the radio, the ability on the radio to communicate the environment was really special. And it was re- very rarely one person. Sometimes it was two or three. Sometimes it was Mike Harrison and myself. So we were talking over each other. Um, and then it was Todd taking over because Todd's God. You know, and he's a guy who, you know, clearly stayed in it. He had the voice, has the voice. He has the orientation. He has the interest. I remember later on, maybe... Four years later, I went to Washington to work for the Associated Press Broadcast Division. And I worked with, uh, well, I was on the news side. The sports guys shared our office and shared our studios and got to know all those guys really well. And then I would sit with Todd five or six years later, and he would tell me stories about those guys. And at least I could put them in perspective because co- Todd never left. Mm-hmm. And it's that kind of continuity. And frankly, his commitment still to the station and to the school mm-hmm. um, is real important. And so I think the legacy of that station, of RHU, VHC, whatever you want to call it, the legacy that has been left in us, um, the affection we have for the people in the place, the fact that we're all talking to you. There are an awful lot of schools that can't get this going. And Hofstra, because it built on its history, right? We were a ragtag bunch of guys and women, but it is now about as professional an NPR, nonprofit, public radio station as WNYC was or, you know, any other station in the country. WBUR, maybe a little bit more. GBH, a little bit more. But what Hofstra has become, as they've tried to make the whole university that, I think the radio group and the School of Communications in general has led the way and set the model for the rest of the school. I mean, there wasn't a medical school. There wasn't really an important business school. There wasn't an important um, engineering school. But there was Hofstra and the School of Communication, not even the school, the Department of Communications and the radio and television and film to some degree. Um, You know why people came to Hofstra in in large numbers? Because they applied to Syracuse and they were admitted and then found out you couldn't touch the equipment until you were a senior. And at Hofstra, if you were a second semester freshman, you were directing. Yeah. You were running a camera. You were running a remote ENG thing. And that's what made Hofstra special and different. 
And that's what sending a couple of students around the country um, in a broken down van down to Pennsylvania to go to Chester, Pennsylvania, or have the joy, and I mean joy, of working a game or a series of games at the Palestra Mm -hmm. in Philadelphia. Spectacular. Greatest, one of the greatest arenas in, in basketball. Hofstra Radio did that, and it made it possible for the Islanders now. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a long journey getting there, but, but you talk about those, those people and the things that you did. And Todd uh, Ant talked to me uh, a great deal about that UCLA trip and <laughs> going, to, going to Notre Dame and Karen Hamble talked about engineering those and and she said you know it was such an honor for her to be back in the studio and 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 you guys said we want karen to run the board on this game because we want to make sure that it works yeah and having people who were you know like you said they were hands-on from first or second semester and getting that experience and working with uh george musgrave and teddy ronneberger and working with all these people who were in the professional field getting that experience and then, like you said, paying it forward and continuing that over time. It is a tremendous legacy, but it comes from that very uh, specific place of, well, we got to get this done, you know, and we got to figure it out. And I think that's, yep. that's just an amazing legacy. Well, you know, um, it's amazing what you can do with spit and duct tape. Mm-hmm. And a little bit and of imagination. Yeah. yeah, we proved that certainly on the road. Inside the building, we hoped that we didn't have to do it. But on the road, absolutely. Going to American University for the first time, down to Washington, because remember, the old uh, basketball conference was much different than it is now. Yeah. Uh, But going down to American and driving up and seeing all these things that, you know, we've seen before, but having a different appreciation for it and finding out that American university, which was a pretty darn good basketball team was not playing on campus, but was actually playing on an army fort basketball court. And it was so intimidating because it was a small room, kind of like the palestra, even smaller. And it was full of American university students and military people rooting against us. And the rims looked 12 feet high. It was an intimidating factor. Hofstra never had that intimidating factor in any of its gyms. You know, when we were there, the, you know, David Thompson was, I guess, the star of the show. And I played against David in high school when he went to Long Beach. And trust me, he wasn't a D1 superstar. But he, you know, again, duct tape and, 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 and spit, and he figured out a way. Didn't figure out a way to win enough, but he figured out a way to make it work. And so it was infectious around the campus. David and I became really good friends um, on campus, even though we were, you know, mortal enemies in high school. He was at Long Beach. I was at Hewlett. Um, and, and that was cool. That was really, you know, those things were really good. And, and you know, when you got Butch Van Bredikoff in my earliest days yeah. coaching, well, okay, you got a Hall of Famer, right? So there were things going on, you know, 
the Jets head coach was coaching Hofstra football. Mm-hmm. Um, still wish they hadn't shut it down. Thought it was a tremendous benefit to the school. And there was a year, probably my senior year, when between the Jets, the Giants, Rutgers, the Merchant Marine Academy, where my friend was playing quarterback, and Hofstra, we were the best football team in New York. I mean, think about that. And we were doing the radio for it. Or going on the road and and interviewing Otto Graham who was the AD at one of the schools we played. Right, with that Merchant Marine Academy, right? Is that, yeah. That's where he was? Yeah, and the head coach at the Merchant Marine Academy was my football coach. Their, their starting quarterback was my starting, starting quarterback in high school. But Otto Graham, imagine sitting with Otto Graham no. for only five minutes when you have 155 minutes of questions. And you learned at Hofstra how to do that. So it really was, um, I don't want to use the word too strongly, but it was an internship as much as it was um, just a college hobby. You were interning, the equivalent of interning at any professional radio station in, 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 in America. And that's what helped me get work right out of school. Yeah, I think it was much more than an internship. You guys were, were doing the work as opposed to Syracuse or other uh, schools where you stand by and watch for three years. You guys were, were doing the things. And that's, yes. there's, there's nothing more valuable than that. Um, I'll tell you one name that you haven't heard. Okay. And that's because I don't think you ever did a radio shift. And his name was is Rod Houston. You ever nope. hear that name? Nope, nope. You got me there. Rod Houston was not. Rod Houston was actually one of the senior first senior guys at Tommy Boy Records, talk about hip-hop, in its 50th anniversary year. And he went on to do voiceovers, and that's why I mention him. He's in the voiceover hall of fame and never did an air shift at, at the radio station. And if you can find him either in Manhattan or in Philadelphia, you might want to ask him why. Okay, we'll do. We'll we'll get we'll get on the trail and see if we can find something. Do you know why? No. Okay. No. Okay. I really don't. It, it may have been a distraction to him. It may have been he thought he was doing TV. It may have been any number of things. But he had a love of music, and he had an infectious personality. Has um, an extraordinarily terrific guy. Loved him. Loved him as a friend, never showed up at radio, don't care. But when he went into voiceover work, I kept wondering, gee, why? So maybe it's an interesting conversation to find one or two or three people who got away. Yeah. I've, uh, I, I've tried to get a few people uh, who were involved in some amount uh, during your era or a little bit before and and a, const, a common refrain I get is, well, I didn't do much at the station, but I, I still right. want to know the stories. I'm still working on people. I'm not giving up. But uh, I mean, like just, Lisa Glassberg. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You know Lisa? Uh, yes. Well, I know of. Right, Lisa G. Yes. Um, <laughs> Lisa G. and I went to the same high school and the same college. Didn't know each other well, 
until she really bombed during her audition at the RKO radio networks when I was there, but don't tell her I said that. Um, Although you're going to put this on the air and she'll know. Um, But, you know, Lisa had a very long successful career. You can comment on it, whether you liked it or not, but where the hell was she at the radio station? If she really had a passion for it. Yeah, some some people uh, managed to go there. Um, uh, a guy who was there when I was an undergrad uh, went on to a very long career at WBAB as the morning show co-host JP, and and he he did some stuff at the station, but he wound up with an internship and and he got into a career. And it's one of those things like, gosh, we I guess we should have used it more or done something, but uh, everybody's got a no, different. No, it was about it wasn't Jeff and it wasn't the station. It was the person. Yeah. He yeah. was, he had a mission. I mean, you know, he wanted to work with Bob Buckman. Okay. I never thought Bob was the greatest program director in the world until he became a great program director. Um, have you spoken to Sean McGowan? No, that's another name to add to the list. All right. So Sean was there when I was there. And I believe for a period he was the music director. Um. Not a lot of on air, but a passion for process and the, the the subject matter. Sean went on to be one of the most quoted Wall Street analysts about the toy industry in the huh. world. That and again, an extraordinary amount of knowledge in that head. Um, might not have been on air, but there are a lot of people who weren't on air or shouldn't have been on the air. Um, that was still part of it. And Sean's a great example. Hmm. Okay. More Trish, work for me. Yeah, I, I mean, it. I'll give you all the names, right? Did you speak to Kit? No. Okay. I'm you got to talk to Kit, Kit Hunt. Okay. You got to talk to Kit Hunt. There used to be, well, there was a woman when I was there who was doing news by the name of Trish Szymanski. And Trish was fantastic. Went on to local radio. I mean, did that you know, small station, small town Delaware thing for a while and went about her job and she was very talented. Um, But she didn't do that much at the station, but she was really, you know, she was good and she was committed. And I think the station, I know this station and I know um, not the influence of Jeff, but the aura of Jeff played a large part for a lot of us. It was, A, I don't want to disappoint him. Mm-hmm. But it was, B, yeah, we're in college, but let's take a professional approach to this. And C, it was, you got a light, I need to light my pipe. And so if you take those three things together and then go to his home for dinner or a party or whatever, that was Jeff. Expecting the best of people pushing us, really pushing us. Um, Walzewski, same thing. Mm-hmm. Walzewski is chief announcer. In retrospect, means we had slim pickings. But he was really good at it because he mm-hmm. took it seriously. And Jeff gave him the authority Right? There are three things you need in your life. You need authority, accountability, and you need responsibility. If you're going to do something, if you're going to run a department, you're going to run a business, those are the three things you need. Accountability, responsibility, 
And I will tell you that Jeff gave us the power or the authority to do those things. And that was and is an eternal learning experience. Amen. Amen. Um, Barry, we've gotten 60 minutes into this conversation and I've, I've asked two of the questions on my list. We've covered a lot of things, but as you, as you predicted, we would have a, a far ranging conversation and, and maybe we'd get to the questions. Maybe we wouldn't. I'm going to try to fold some of my questions from what we've already talked about into the list of things that I have. So I want to get us back. Um, is there a story that you always tell when talking about WVHC? It would have been um, primarily the early days of the post-punk progressive pop party. Yeah. Um, and all of you people who call it P5 are lazy. Um, it's, a, it's a great name. It it's really was. And I it love fit. it. And yeah. it fit. Um, in the early days, you know, figuring out who was it. Was the cars or was it the police? You know, where does kind of harder metal... Max's Peppermint Lounge kind of stuff go. And you know what? They became our playlist. Mm -hmm. Whether it was the waitresses as a one-hit wonder or the talking heads or talking about the talking heads, the Tom Tom Club, mm -hmm. um, or it was Was Not Was, which turned out to, which generated the greatest contemporary music producer Mm -hmm. But I remember when they came around and they played two nights back to back, they played Max's and it was standing room only. And it was a, I don't know, a 12 piece group. Um, Don was, Dave was, neither of which was their last name. Wayne Kramer from the MC5. They had the Brides of Funkenstein, all of the Parliament Funkadelic women doing backup singing. And they were amazing, right? And I put them on the air first and I went to the show at Max's and then the next night or the night after I was going to introduce them at Malibu and there were 12 people in the building. Oh my God. That's, that's, that's a cultural and geographic difference there. You know, yeah. there's what's going on in Manhattan and what's going on in yeah. Long Beach. And, and, you know, the bridge and tunnel crowd just took a while to catch up. Yeah. Um, but you asked me what I think about. I think about the earliest days of, of post-punk progressive pop party. I remember walking with Scott and Bob through the library saying, no, 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 maybe. And then letting Bob go about his shopping trips yeah. to bring real music to the station. So that's what I think about. And then I think about the, the, the sports stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, hanging with Todd, hanging with Mike, hanging with the coaches and the players, because uh, we were a small school and, you know, we were playing smallish or, you know, they called us mid-majors. No such thing. Right. Um, you were either a major or a small. Um, but going to those schools and having that experience wouldn't have had otherwise. And loved what I did. Um, and I love the people that I worked with. And I think I can say that for 85% of the people overall at the station. And I'm not going to tell you who the other 15% were. Okay. 
Fair enough. Um, uh, a question along those lines. Is there a story that you've forgotten about or has come back to you or something that you just you just don't often talk about about your time at Hofstra Radio? I talk about everything. Haven't you figured that out? Uh, fair enough. I had to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Is there Mike um, Harrison? My, I yeah. will tell you that Mike Harrison and to some degree Todd remind me from time to time on Facebook about that damn van and how it would always break down and how much fun that was and how disastrous it was, but we never missed a game. That's And so that's one of them that I rarely think about, but I see reference. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I don't think about it a lot, but now that we talk about it, I, you know, I think a lot about Jeff, obviously. I yeah. think about Sue. Um, I think about Scott. Um, I think about McGowan, who you didn't know. I rarely think of Jeff Foss because we really came to loggerheads. Um, I wanted a different kind of music and he wanted a different kind of music. Um, I will tell you the one artist he and I both agreed on in mm-hmm. 1980. He showed up in 82 before he stayed for several years. And that was my senior year. Um was Prince, hmm. the early Prince. And I don't think about that often, but now that we're talking about it, I absolutely do. And it went on to be just a kind of a lifetime fascination because of the post-punk progressive pop party before he became top 40, before he became commercial radio, um, until he was the greatest concert I ever saw in my life. Yeah. Which was when I was living in L.A. I don't know if you know this. I used to run a company called National Lampoon. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and um, Prince would do like a week at the Forum before Staples Center even opened. And he was there for a week. So at th- 2 a.m., 2.30 a.m., he would do a second show just with he and maybe one other person, primarily acoustic. At 2 a.m., 3 a.m., at the House of Blues on Sunset Strip. And you had to know somebody. It couldn't have been you knew somebody who knew somebody. You had to be directly connected to get tickets to those nights. And what started at Hofstra continued to the day he died. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see whether, you know, like you said, you and Jeff Foss had different ideas about the program. It's Prince. I feel like you can put him in almost any genre and he fits because he's he's the genius of our times. But He really um, is. I mean, yeah. 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 Is there a song? Is there an event? Is there a game that, in your mind, defines your time at the station? I think Madness One Step Beyond. Hmm. Uh, in many ways, because I was mad. I still am. Um, I thought that Ska was it, whether it was Madness or the Specials or the Beat, formerly known as the English Beat, mm-hmm. or the Fish Bones, who are still touring, God help them. Yeah. Um, and to some same degree, Squeeze. Okay. Um, do you have a biggest 
accomplishment or proudest moment of your time at WVHC? I think we've hit on a couple of them, but I'm going to ask more specifically. Do you have one thing where you're like, that's the best thing ever? No, I don't think I ever got there. I think in retrospect, at this ripe old age, I can look back and say, I never did my best work. I think maybe the documentary came close because that got me my job at Associated Press. But my best work was in my head, not in my mouth. I knew what I should have done and I didn't. Or I knew where I should have gone and I didn't. Or I didn't think of that. And the thing about WVHC is it gave me the freedom to know that. It gave me the experience to know that. It gave me the ability to watch other people do it and say, geez, why didn't I think of that? I mean, there are only so many times you can play the theme to 2001 A Space Odyssey during a classical show. And I'm not a classical guy. I wasn't a classical guy. But you had to do it if you wanted to do anything else. And I think that was a brilliant play for Jeff. So do I think I did my best work at Hofstra? I did my most fun work at Hofstra. But I think the best work I did while I was having fun would have been the doc. Because nobody was doing them at the time at the station. Really long-form programming. And I went off campus. It wasn't just talking to students who were vets or teachers who were vets. Getting the head of the Vietnam Veterans of America to figure out a way to get down the steps at Memorial Hall was pretty damn impressive. Hmm. And I think that was probably my best work. And I think it was the most impactful work. Forget what we did with post-punk progressive pop 40. Yes, it was impactful in music. It was impactful for popular culture. It was impactful for commercial radio, but that documentary was probably the most impactful and the best thing I did there. Hmm. You kind of alluded uh, or mentioned this a couple of minutes ago that, you know, there were some things that you could have done differently or should have done or whatever, however we, we want to phrase it. Was it... Why didn't it come to the point where what was in your head got onto tape or came out of your mouth? Was it just being 20 years old? Was it that the equipment wasn't available? Were you impatient? Why didn't you get what was in your head out in the way that you wanted to? Well, one is, you know, I was a student, right? We all were, most of us. So there was that dichotomy in our brain that, you know, almost bipolar kind of thing. I got to focus on learning Chinese because if there's World War III, that's how the treaty is going to be written, which is truly how I looked at it. Um, Or my favorite professor on camp, one of my two favorite professors on campus, who was an English professor, a guy named Jack Salzman, who really taught me and it helped me at Hofstra and it helped me throughout my life Everything, not everything, most of the things he focused on that I paid attention to was the concept of popular culture as historic artifact. Hmm. And if you look at the world that way, and I really still do, that's what the radio station was. It was popular culture as an historic artifact of the times, of the campus, of the people, and in retrospect. 
And I love that way of thinking. Jack really changed my point of view. And then, the, you know, I had a professor named George Gordon. I don't know who else had George. Um, he was long gone by the time you were there. But I had a professor who said to me, you're going to graduate school. And I said, George, I don't know that I'm going to graduate from Hofstra. And he said, I don't care. You're going to be a teaching fellow for me at Fordham. Wow. And it was that kind of confidence I got from him that I think the radio station helped him view. Hmm. Um, obviously, you threw yourself into uh, a number of very big projects that we're still talking about today. And the station meant so much to you. And, and does. Was there ever a time where you got frustrated or you were ready to leave or walk away and just said, I, I, I don't want to do this anymore or, or I don't know if this is the right place for me? No. We, I was a misfit in a band of misfits. We were very strange people. I mean, we, <laughs> many people. of us, I hope I wasn't one of them, but many of us didn't just fit in anywhere else. Yeah. This was the place where we could be us. And I think that any student who comes into that station now or going forward or into the department now, particularly TV also, and journalism. Remember, we I was part of the guy, I was one of the team who started the second student newspaper. The Chronicle was there forever. And I was one of the founding editors of what something called The Satellite. Oh, which was not printed on news press and was not tabloid sized or, or broadsheet sized. We were mimeographed. Remember mimeographs? I do. Um, and I will remember, I will tell you a story from those days that I'm the only one who remembers. I was covering at the age of 18 or 20, the Democratic National Convention in Manhattan for the station. And it was extraordinary. It was an extraordinary experience that I wouldn't have had otherwise. But there were odd things that happened. There was a very well-known local reporter for one of the affiliates or own and own stations. Black guy, didn't matter. Went to cover an event that was on the schedule was nothing. It was boring. And I heard him on his phone to the assignment desk who was telling him where to go. And his quote was, am I only going to see a bunch of white guys in suits or is something going to happen? And it was such a great learning lesson. You know, it was just such a great learning lesson. So, you know, having had that experience at the convention and having all the credentials it was awesome, right? And I wouldn't have had that other than Hofstra. So I can look forward and say, you know, again, I didn't get the job at the Associated Press if I didn't have that documentary. Hmm. And then got to be the, you know, lead daytime, early evening producer on at AP Broadcast. To remember the day that Larry King walked in with a guest because his studio at Mutual broke down. And he used one of ours. Hmm. You know, it's just experiences like that never would have happened 
but for Hofstra. So I really want prospective students to know that this is not the end. This is the beginning and be a misfit. It's okay. Um, Have a vision or a dream and follow it. Uh, We all did um, in to one degree or another. And Hofstra Radio sits in our hearts and in our brains, whether we recognize it or not. And I think that's, you know, that welcome to the wonderful world of Jeffrey C. Krause. Yeah. I think, part of you know jeff's legacy and yours and all of ours really is that you said you know have a vision and and follow that but also being open yeah to other possibilities and i think that's a thing that a lot of us walk in and don't know what we want to do and we're like well this seems fun and then you follow it and that goes to a that goes to b and then you wind up with a career whether it's in radio or not all these things inform it because you are open to the experience and open to the challenge You're absolutely right. I think that if I could have advocated and I tried for one change, Uh right? You asked me what would have made me walk away. The thing I advocated for a big change was integration, not racial, not gender, campus. That radio was truly a part of communications, not that thing in the basement or Jeffrey and the station office off around the side as an entrance, but that it was truly integrated into the media, into uh, print, into TV, into the film department, right? We we basically had a building full of possible music supervisors who never knew that existed. Yeah. and that integration, and I understand it's it's far greater now, but I think we're all the lesser for it on one side and the better for it on the other because we had to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think there's there's so much value in the in the figuring it out part. And well, we only have two of the three things we need. You still gotta figure it out as opposed to now. There is that integration and all these things that come together. I think there's value in both, but um, it's. Uh, I think you were about 45 years ahead of ahead of schedule as far as uh, I'm not old enough to have been 45 years ahead of schedule, and if I am, never say it again. Okay, fair enough. Um, uh, let me switch gears here. Earlier, I mentioned the UCLA trip and Todd and and you chuckled, and, but we kept moving on. And I really wanted to know what that chuckle was about. So my, my tie-in question in here is, what's the funniest thing that ever happened to the station or something that makes you laugh to this day? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I don't know that anything really made me chuckle. I was always laughing. I yeah. was always high. Um, but... It was just a sense of remember the line from Jerry Maguire, "You complete me." Mm-hmm. I think Hofstra Radio did that for me, and I don't know that I can think of a, a single hysterical experience. Um, you know, being at UCLA, being at Notre Dame. Traveling with the reporters, the print reporters, who covered 
Hofstra basketball or covered basketball in the New York metro area. There's some really interesting people. Brian Burwell, who went on to a massive career. Steve Marcus, who was at, you know, Newsday until there won't be a Newsday. Um, those kinds of guys, that was really interesting. And the pickup basketball games we would have before and after games. That was great. Um, I remember the trip from, I guess, Westwood to San Diego when we went to the University of California at San Diego, which for the record is the prettiest college campus I've ever been to beginning that day. But we stayed in a motel and every room had its own swimming pool. Don't know how it happened. And you know, it was Hofstra, so we were paying no money. But that was kind of cool. Um, yeah, I, I don't have one of those things that makes me laugh. I have a lot of those things that make me smile. Hmm. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's, it sounds like there was a lot of joy in your experiences. There really was. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the people, you know, and it becomes self-selection, right? There were people I were not friendly with. But, you know, Todd and I are still friends. Todd and I go out for dinner, you know, monthly here in Florida. Um, you know, um, John Valenti, who nobody mentioned, was the sports editor of the Chronicle and did some ra some radio sports with us. You know, interesting guy. Spent forty two years at Newsday. Wow. In the sports department. Um. So there was a lot of that kind of success that came out of it. I don't count myself because I just don't. Um, but I believe that whatever successes I had, to some degree, can be laid at the foot there. For example, when I was at National Lampoon, I'm not going to talk about the movies or TV crap. We started a 24-7 Sirius XM radio station when um, they were first starting their comedy tier. Mm -hmm. And I ran that. Right. And I was, I don't choose a title. It doesn't matter. That was Hofstra Redux. That was who can do what in one small room. I mean, we, we created the same obstacles, not intentionally. Right. It was running on a shoestring. But we were on the air 24-7. We did our own imaging. We had guests come in on a regular basis. It was all comedy. We were across the street uh, from, from, from the store, from the comedy store, and down the street from, you know, all the other clubs because we were right on the strip. But that was as close to reminiscent and reliving as I possibly could have gotten. And that was... Wow, that was 20 years later. Right, and to do that and, and get paid for it, and it's, uh, it's a pretty neat opportunity. Not everybody gets that to, to recreate that. And from that. scratch. Yeah. And from scratch. So I made all the same mistakes I made when I was there all over again as a professional. Okay. So that, that, so here's a question that I usually ask towards, towards wrapping up, but you know, is there a piece of advice that you would have given your 18, 19 year old self? If you had 30 seconds to try time travel and go back and say, Hey, Barry, 
here's something you got to know. And I guess that goes for your Hofstra time or for, you know, Sirius or any other thing. You know, what would you, what would you tell yourself? Do it. Don't take no for an answer. Hmm. Would 18 year old Barry have listened to that? Unfortunately, yes. (laughs) Unfortunately? Yeah. Yeah. um, There were a lot of people on that campus in my life um, who would say, do it my way. Do it our way. Or more importantly, do it the way we've always done it, which as I got into the world of radio and television and motion pictures and then digital media, that was the first grounds of dismissal for anybody who worked for me, which was, why aren't we doing it this way? And the answer being, because we've always done it this way, or we've never done it that way. To me, that's the sign of a lack of creativity and innovation. And Hofstra Radio was the embodiment of problem solving creatively and innovating because you had no choice. Yeah, that's that that's the essence of all the interviews that I've done. That that is that is the heart of of what I think we've all gone through and what we've carried through in our lives. Well said. Um, if we could create a hypothetical situation, you get a phone call from John Mullen or someone at the station today, we need you to be on the air. Technology aside, would you go back and do a shift? Absolutely. That's why God created airplanes. Right, right. Is there any, because you did a lot of different things, is there a particular format? Is there a show that you would do again? I would try. Funny you say that. When I was there, I had um, an idol in radio. And not surprisingly, it was at WNEW-FM, even though they weren't the same format. But it was Vin Skelsa. And it was the night that John Lennon was murdered. And the radio show that Vince put on, which basically became talk radio, rock talk radio, in Manhattan as a tribute, but more a comfort, like a group therapy session Mm -hmm. to get through that pain. And if I could ever try to recreate that, I would. Do it. Have somebody call me. Send an airplane (laughs) ticket in there. I'll do it. I'll do it as Vince did for 14 hours. Yeah. Turn the microphone Turn, turn the airtime over to the listeners. We never had a great talk show, call-in show. Hmm. We had a lot of call-in requests and this and that, but we never really built the capability to be able to take, and, and, and that's what I did in my most of my radio career, uh, professional radio career, was working in talk radio. I mean, you know, I was, I was running content on WMCA, I had the greatest um, mentor in the world as a program director. Jeff would have loved him, a guy named Rick Sklar. 
Hmm. And Rick Sklar is a Hall of Fame hero. He was WINS when it was a rock and roll radio station. He was at every, he introduced rock and roll basically in New York radio. Forget Alan Freed. And Rick was, I mean, he was the guy who coined the phrase W.A. Beatles C. To give you some perspective of just how old he would have been. And we were at his induction into the Hall of Fame. He asked me to go with him. And in typical Rick fashion, and I'm convinced now, knowing what I do, he was on the spectrum. Okay. Didn't make eye contact, was always off in the corner, you know, that kind of thing. But he was at his induction ceremony with a Walkman listening to air tapes and air checks rather than socializing and being acknowledged. Then at one point I turned to Rick and I went, this ain't rock radio, man. This ain't top 40 radio. This is talk radio and you have no people skills. So as you can tell, I don't have a filter. And he said, you know, you're right. I said, so how do you do it? And he said the nicest thing to me anybody has ever said to me in radio and perhaps professionally and maybe even personally, never heard it from my ex-wife. That's why I have you. Wow. And I thought, you know what? Thank you. But I think a lot of those skills I learned at the feet of the masters, of Jeff, of Sue, um, of all of the people who came before me and concurrent with me. I think I learned that from them. Wow. Amen. Barry, this has been tremendous. I, I, you know, I had a plan going into this interview and you said before we started recording, we'll see where it goes. And I think we've covered everything, but your stories are amazing. Uh, this interaction has been amazing. I don't have more questions, but I'm going to find an excuse for us to just tell more stories because this was so much fun. I've, I've had well, an absolute blast. There are a lot of numbers after two. And you may use as many as you'd like. And if I don't have an answer, I'll make it up. All right. Fair enough. Thank you so much for doing this. I, I, I loved every second of this. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Brian. I'm glad I'm out of the hospital and able to Amen. do it. Amen. Amen. Cheers.